It's Flat Out RC time, the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. I'm talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name is Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. Pretty cold Melbourne, Australia at the moment. Winter is really settling in down here, which if you're from this part of the uh, the world means can't go flying as often as we probably would like. But in saying that, there's nothing better than a nice, clear, still winter's day to go flying. The air just seems to be nice and dense and conditions perfect when it's calm. So if you can manage with the cold hands, everything's pretty good. A good episode coming up, a special one, something that I've had on the cards for a long time. And uh, joining us is Heath McDonald. Now, Heath is not only an aero modeler, but he works for CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority, our governing body here in Australia that uh, looks after the skies. So as aero modelers down here, uh, they do look over us. And so good chat with Heath, talking about his history in the hobby and then about CASA and aero modeling and their views and things like that. So uh, something that I've wanted to do for a long time to get someone in from CASA, and uh, it did take some time. But anyway, stay tuned. Heath McDonald is coming up before then. Let's see what's been on my mind. What have I been thinking about this week? Not too much. Uh, there's not much going on in the aero modelling scene. Uh, it's been a funny week uh, here in Australia. We've got we've had different states have different levels of COVID lockdowns, um, most, of, most of them are coming out of sort of that, that lockdown phase at the moment, but uh, not much happening on the aero modelling scene besides getting out there and enjoying the hobby. But I'm about to embark on a new project at some point in time, the next few months or so, in no rush, and that is I'm building my first larger scale electric model aircraft so historically i've had this philosophy that anything sort of under 30 cc size plane uh has been electric i've, I've made electric models you know the 48 inch wingspans the 60 inch wingspans that kind of thing and then anything over sort of you know getting towards that 30 cc size and up about you know we we're talking about 1.7 to 1.8 um, meter wingspan i've been going with gases uh I have no nitro models in my hangar anymore. I have had nitro models. I learned on a nitro model, uh, but I don't have any more at the moment. So I'm, I'm, I'm purely sort of an electric guy and then the old gas or, or petrol. People give them – here in Australia, if you're listening from overseas, you know what I mean by gases. Here in Australia, I've had people complain about me using the term gasser because we don't use gas in quotation marks here in Australia. We use – we call it petrol. And so uh, – but I just use the word gas because I think it's sort of like that universal term that we use for petrol-powered uh, you know, model motors, um, model engines, I should say, So uh, compared to the nitro-powered. So I define them by nitro and gases anyway. Uh, but I'm embarking on this new project to build a 30cc aerobatic plane as an electric model. And it's something that I've wanted to do for a while. And I've had a I've had a spare 30cc airframe uh, sitting around. And I thought, well, now is the time to maybe put that model together and try a larger size electric plane. Well, oh, the thing that's been putting me off about electric, the larger electric planes is, you know, the flight time, you got to charge the batteries. It's just sometimes easier to just refuel and go. On the 
On the flip side, starting gas and motors, bit of a hassle. You don't have that problem with the electric plane, plug it in. And what really sparked me to try that bigger size is I was out of the field flying my Extreme Flight 48-inch Extra. And I thought, it's a nice plane. I'm, I've, I've had it for a long time. I'm talking eight years, at least eight to nine years. No, probably eight years I've had that model. Uh, and it flies really, really well for, for its size. But I thought, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have something a bit bigger that's electric, that if I, you know, I'm short on time and I don't want to worry about starting engines and all that kind of stuff, I'll just take the electric model down there. So I made the decision that uh, I'm going to build this 30cc up. Um, so anyway, that is what's happening on the cards. Uh, it's, an, it's a 3D Hobby Shop 75-inch extra. And something that I kept, I used to bring in the 3D Hobby Shop planes here in Australia and 3D Hobby Shop prior to the merge with Extreme Flight. And so I kept one because for anybody that knows that model, it has one of the best schemes ever designed by Aaron Bates, who is an expat Aussie, lives over in the US now. And, the, and that model, the red, white, and blue scheme is one of the best. If you, if you just go and have a look at 3DHS 75-inch extra and you'll see the scheme, you know what I'm talking about. And I've got the bigger, the bigger brother, the 108, 100cc, 120cc in the same scheme. So, so I've decided to make that electric. So I'll just quickly run you through what I'm, what I'm planning. It, it's going to be a powerhouse. It is a bit of an experiment, but it's going to be a powerhouse. So it's going to run a 12S setup. So two 6S battery packs, uh, which I've never done before. In a 30cc, that's a lot of grunt. Uh, I'm going to be running a dual sky 40cc motor uh, and dual sky servos throughout. Some, some people think that I'm sponsored by dual sky. I'm not. I bought all these. Uh, I, I know Orville from dual sky who owns the business. I've visited the factory, but uh, their motors are phenomenal. Oh, and again, I'm not being paid by anyone to say this. And, and the reason why I chose the Jules guy is in their larger scale um, motors, they've got a 30 or 40, I think they've got a 20cc, 30, 40, 60cc motor is just phenomenal. It's a work of art uh, and always had good reports. Never heard anybody complain about a dual sky motor, not one person. So I'm going to try that up the front. I'm going to have... Almost too much power, I, I'm expecting. But the reason why I went with 12S is because I got 6S battery packs. I didn't want to go and buy, you probably know what I'm talking about. How many different batteries do we own? I have so many different size batteries. So I thought I'm going to, don't want 5S and more 4S packs. I'm just going to run a 12S setup. And uh, a friend of mine's very good with electric models and has, has successfully done it before. So he'll guide me. But um, yeah, dual sky gear all throughout, including the, um, the, the uh, ESC as well, 120 amp ESC that will go into it. Haven't decided what prop to run yet. Probably be a Falcon of some variety. Don't know. Might try, start with a wooden prop, see how that goes, and then you know maybe move into a carbon. But we'll see. We'll see how we go. So that's what I'm going to do. Um, bigger electric plane. I know a lot of you out there probably already tried it. Uh, but something new for me, something to, to look forward to, a different flying experience, which I'm always looking for. So stay tuned. I'll keep you. I'll keep you updated. But look, I, I'm not planning on starting it for a while. Uh, I want to. I've got to sell another model airplane to make some room for it. But uh, I'm ready. Next lockdown we have, I'm starting to build that model airplane, which I don't think it's going to take me that long. Electric setup should be pretty easy. So stay tuned. My a 30cc size aerobatic electric model will be coming.
guest time in this week's guest is Heath McDonald. And as mentioned earlier, Heath is an aero modeler. I have, I'm sure I've met him at the, the Shepparton Mammoth Flying before uh, event. I've met him at uh, the air show, the Avalon Air Show, International Air Show down here. And he was there representing the, the company, the organization that he works for, which is CASA, the Civil Aviation Safety Authority. And Heath is he's, he's the number one listener of the uh, Flat Out RC podcast. He's listened to every single one. Uh, so thank you, Heath. But he's a good guy. And we've been toing and froing for many months now uh, about having him to come on and, and talk a bit about CASA and that kind of thing. And uh, and he had to get approval from, from his bosses to do that. They managed to do that. And uh, you'll see how we're so lucky to have someone like Heath uh, in the midst of the ca- of CASA, and uh, he's definitely waving the flag for we aero modelers. So, a really, really good chat with Heath. Hope you enjoy it. Uh, lots of little insights as to what they're what they're doing, where they're at, um, and how they view aero modeling. So, some good little nuggets throughout. So, here we go. My chat with Heath McDonald. Well, this guest has been a long time in the making. Heath McDonald and I have been like, how long have we been talking? online to try to organize this it's been months hasn't it uh, almost too long i think longer than the covid lockdowns that's true well well heath it's a pleasure to finally have you on the flat out rc podcast thanks for joining me now we're going to cover a few different bases with you because uh our discussions really happened around um casa civil aviation safety authority for anybody that's listening abroad they're the regulators that manage the airspace here in australia and uh I wanted to have someone on from CASA and, and Heath, you are an aero modeler and you happen to work for CASA. So we're going to cover a lot of different grounds. But before we really get into it, I don't know your story in radio control and I've, I've saved it for this moment. So where did your journey in aero modeling begin? Well, um, firstly, thanks for the patience um, <laughs> to get to get us to get someone to represent on here. Um, it's good that we can. So I'm very happy to come on here. Um, look, my history in aviation, I guess you could say, started at three years old when I got lost at Sydney Airport and uh, AFP kindly returned me to my parents. Look, I didn't see an issue with it, looking at all the 747s and things like that. So, uh, but look, from there, look, I was just absolutely fascinated with aircraft for some reason and um, ended up in the Australian Air League, um, so somewhat sort of cadets. And in there, uh, one of the older fellas bought a Hustler Mark III kit, Aeroflight. And I know you mentioned Aeroflight yeah. quite a bit through your podcast. So I also started with an Aeroflight Mark III because I bought that off him. And I spent probably 12 months building it on my lounge room floor at about age 12. Um, and finally convin- convinced mum to take me out to Appen Aeromodeler, uh, Sports Aeromodelers Club. And when I got out there, um, I was absolutely ex- like I was ex- so excited that I pretty much just sat there watching all the planes fly. Meanwhile, a few of the older fellas were examining the, uh, I wouldn't call it a plane that I built, <laughs> um, but it, it was definitely a few bits of balsa put together with wings and a tail plane. Um, they quickly advised me that it probably wasn't the best job and I needed to look at something better. Um, so I got home that day, rode my bike down to 
the local hobby stop, hobby shop, and bought a uh, classic little forty size trainer. And sort of the rest is history. I um, I met a great friend um, who inst instructed me how to fly Gus Greening. Um, his name is probably synonymous around the scale uh, scene. Um, and so he took me under his wing, pardon the pun. Um, and yeah, from there, just continued to learn to fly with him. Um, I, I do recall that he would never let me take off and started to bug me a bit. I was thinking, you know, why, why won't he let me take off this plane? It's got to be really easy. Anyway, eventually after I learned how to land, Gus taught me how to take off. And I, I did ask him, you know, what, <laughs> after a while, after I built up some courage, I said, why didn't you teach me to take off? And he said, because there's no use learning how to take off if you don't know how to land. <laughs> and so, um, yeah, Gus was, I always looked up to Gus and unfortunately he passed away last February. Um, and it was just, he took, yeah, took me under his wing, looked, taught me how to fly and then probably the, thing that I value the most is he taught me how to build from scratch and was always adamant that I had to build an aircraft from scratch and also attend Shepparton. And Shepparton he oh, put as the, the ultimate. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, that's that's sort of where I started with it. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of blossomed into um, little sport planes and, and back then when I was young, had no money, uh, Probably didn't buy the best components, stupidly. Uh, lesson which I um, remember now, make sure I remember now, so that when I speak about a lot, the quality of components in an aircraft really makes an aeroplane fly better. It's so true. So, it's interesting. I had a yeah. chat um, when I was at the field last time with with a young guy, and my, I said to him, stop buying rubbish. I said, you have... <laughs> a shed put full of rubbishy aircraft, half of them are broken. His mum said, yeah, that's right, and he doesn't even fix them. He just he just has them sitting there and keeps on amassing another piece of junk. I said, what you need to do is that when you've got limited amounts of money, you've got to make sure that what you buy is actually going to be good because if you've got plenty of money, you can waste it, you know, 100 bucks here, there, whatever. But if, if, you, if you're going to buy 100 bucks, you've got 100 bucks to spend, make sure it's going to be something that's good. And then... That model will last longer, it will fly better, you'll enjoy it more. It's not necessarily about having so many different models. Just focus on that thing and make sure it flies really well because as, I'm like you. We learnt from rubbishy planes, you know? Yeah. Well, because the hassle with them and that kind of stuff. So where do you see yourself sitting though now? Like in the, in the whole landscape of aero modelling and as far as categories, do you see yourself as a scale guy or an aerobatics or a bit of everything? Oh, geez, it's really a bit of everything. You know, I've, um, I like flying gliders. I like flying things that go fast, um, scale, probably probably mostly scale. But um, I dabbled in iMac when I was up in Queensland with the Army, um, and that was awesome. I really enjoyed it. Um, I didn't enjoy the first score sheet, but <laughs> it, <laughs> definitely flying iMac or precision aerobatics, no matter what level you fly at, and I was only a low sportsman flyer in IMAC, it really improves your flying. And the majority of people that are around that group are really helpful. And they're not there to showboat or, or try and, you know, um, 
create their own luck or you know build their own profile they're, they're really there just for the fun of it so people like and i'll drop their names dave and aaron yeah. go i used to um see if they were going to a comp because they just created a, a great atmosphere especially dave like you know screaming down the doing these beat up runs screaming down the strip after a mm. um, set of maneuvers um to aaron calling for dave and i could barely judge because i was in stitches about pretty much aaron telling me dave off and dave not following what he was meant to be doing and so i sort of dabbled in everything i guess you can say um but scale is probably where i have the most fun and that's probably brought out from being um mentored by gus so um he he had a big stinson sr9 reliant that sat on for my knowledge he sat on sat on the desk for or build bench for well since i knew him um it was it crashed at shepparton uh, unfortunately metal fatigue on a landing strut um clapped the wings and i unfortunately i never got to see it fly um and so that just having that sort of person around just made me more interested in that scale side of things and also i'm a I had um, aircraft identification nerd, I call it. Hmm. Give me any sort of sport aircraft or light sport aircraft. I just love aircraft. So, um, yeah, probably scale. And I, it's um, it's funny. You do things on scale aircraft where people will never see them, but for some reason you, it's scale. So you have to you put a little antenna under the bottom of the wing or something and you after five hours of creating the antenna, you go, why the hell did I spend that long? <laughs> but it's, it, I, I always find it's those little details that really make the difference with those models. Like, you know, <laughs> you, you take, you know, a Cessna or a Warbird or something like that and, you know, we see a fair few of them. Like they're not – it's not an uncommon sight, for example, to see a Piper Cub when you go to a scale yeah. event or like you go to Shepard or something like that. You'll see numerous Cub-style aircraft. But the ones that really stand out are the ones where they just, like there's a mate of mine that's got this big Hempel Cub and the way that he's detailed the interior, the whole cockpit area is phenomenal and that's what makes the difference. Like that cockpit made the difference. Now that plane is a special plane because of the cockpit. Same with, he's got a Hangar 9 100cc decathlon and I love that decathlon, absolutely love the decathlon, but even more special is the interior that he put into it and the detail and the 3D printed components like headsets and a place to place the headsets in the side of the cockpit and all that kind of stuff is what it, it, otherwise just a run-of-the-mill ARF, just another decathlon kind of thing. So <laughs> I think you've got to make that. I'm a big fan of um, Mike Patey on YouTube. Do you follow? Yeah, him? yeah, yeah. I do. I follow him. Yeah, and it, yeah. and Mike Patey for anyone, a lot of you probably know, he builds. Um, Modifies planes, build planes, and modifies planes. He's a he's a he's a wealthy guy, a hard worker, and um, he he he's building this big this cub at the moment. But it's it sort of looks like a cub, but it's you know got a massive engine in it and it's yeah. carbon and all that. And you look at the detail that he's going to in building that that plane, and you just go, it's just a standout. And it's the same with with aero modeling. It's it, you know if you've got to you got to spend the time to make it look good. When it, when you look at scale though, is it are you warbirds or civilian planes or a bit of everything? Uh, a bit of everything. I like the unusual stuff. Um, 
when I say unusual, I think sort of unique um, sort of thing. So, uh, for example, there's an Australian aircraft that was designed and manufactured here called a Eagle 150, and it's a it's pretty much got three wings. You could say it's got a forward um, main plane, then a centre wing, and a um, tail plane. So it just looks a bit odd, but I I find it pretty cool. Mm. Um, but I, I I really admire anything that's built well and scaled, detailed well. Um, you know, people like, uh, you could name quite a few of them, but Anthony Ogle, um, Noel Finlay, all those people that just, I don't know, they just have this knack to produce a model that it almost makes you second guess whether it is real or not, um, especially in the air. So it's really about whether the model looks I'm not attracted to civilian or either or I, I just appreciate a nice model probably so yeah now those some of those guys that you've mentioned gee I was I'm fortunate that at my local f- flying field there's Noel Finlay and David Law and so I, you just almost like oh geez you wouldn't take an IRS there would you <laughs> no I, I saw I, I was having a chat with them last time at the field and uh took a few photos for Instagram on uh, you know of their models and stuff like that and Noel Finlay's plane is just well, actually I keep forgetting the model CT four that's the one and yeah. I keep on saying it's a windshield but the um but the <laughs> that's what I keep on thinking but it's not but the um but it is phenomenal it's a kind of plane that you could spend ten minutes looking at it and see something that you'd never seen before there's that much yeah. detail in it the cockpit area and that kind of thing and you know what these guys too they're not afraid to fly those planes. They're not afraid at all to get him up in the air. David Law will always be flying his pits. And I'm thinking, aren't you worried about that? That's, that's your pride and joy. Yeah. And it's like, no, he <laughs> practices it with it and that kind of stuff. So, Yeah, see, I was surprised as well. that I went to the 2019 Shepard and I thought there may be a bit of hesitation to put them up, just given how good they are as a scale model. But they were probably that group, Greg Lepp and all that, Probably flew the most, I would say, out of everyone there. Well, you know, as I said, I, if more often than not, David Law will be out there with his pits. Yeah. It's like it baffles me. But he's building a new plane. He's building a, a laser <laughs> or something now, and that's that's going to be awesome too. Well, everything. Yeah, see that. Cool, but uh, you have to appreciate the craftsmanship of that. I can't. Yeah. I you know, can't it's... do it. I can't. I, I, there's something in my fingers. I just can't do it. <laughs> the I, cold? No. Well, north. I'll tell you what, it's, yeah, at the moment it's not great weather down here in Melbourne. But uh, I don't know. I don't know whether I'm a, I'm really busy at the moment, I'm a busy stage of life, and I'm hoping that uh, when I retire, I definitely have plans to build model aircraft. Like I always talk about, you've heard me talk about Super Chipmunk. Yeah, I'm like, yeah. I'm really tempted just to buy it, have it here before someone stops making it and buy all the components ready to go. <laughs> but um, I, I keep on thinking, like, you know, something like that that I can really sink my teeth into, do a proper build on it, and try to put some scale detail in. You know, it's where I don't have to rush. I can just take my time. But um, yeah, it's um, one day. Gus always told me that it's ninety uh, percent of the build takes ten percent of the time, and then vice versa. So that ninety percent is building it, but then the ten percent detail takes ninety percent of the bloody time. It's all. It's always the case. Yeah, yeah. It's um, but I mean, you you have to love it to, or yeah, yeah, you have to love it to actually invest time into it. I think I've got a twelve month old and a three and a half year old 
full-time job and I've packed out a two and a half meter by three meter not shed it's like a room um, and I still build in it so I think if you love it I guess you just sort of put up with it um, and try and get things done but I am slower obviously than when I didn't have kids yeah I'm sure you can attest to that oh no it was exactly what it's like that uh it's very, I, my, one of my biggest downsides as far as building goes is I don't have the space. My house is too small. There's too much stuff in it. And uh, my garage is my trailer in it. It's a single-car garage. So that's full of aircraft. I call it my storage. Yeah. And so that get, gets moved in and out when I want to work in the garage kind of thing. But it, can you imagine that every time you wanted to work on the plane, you'd have to set everything up and then pack it all down and hide it all away? Because yeah, I'll think the wife doesn't that like would do, mate. Yeah, and I, I, I've got, I've got Heath. I've got long-term plans, right? I will be building, <laughs> and it won't be in this house. It'll be somewhere else. It's just I'm just working on it at the moment. It might take a while, but I'll get there at some point in time. I've still got, I've still got a way to go before I retire. Not, I would. Well, actually, I'm going to win the lotto this Thursday, um, and so I should be retiring by sort of Friday morning. So, um, oh, excellent. Things are looking good. Yeah, sixty million. Just, a, I think that'll get me through. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, if you can share me a million, I can retire too. And yeah, okay. my retirement plan's always been to work at Bunnings and just recommend uh, liquid nails to everyone for anything. <laughs> That's... I'll be Sally's number one agent. <laughs> That'd be perfect. Do you, do you use liquid nails to build your model planes? <laughs> no, well, maybe not for that. How <laughs> do <laughs> you build it with liquid nails? Oh, interesting, yeah. when you were talking about that story about when you build that uh, Hustler when you were 12, I'm just yeah. thinking I'm, I know what where this is going because I've done the same thing when I was sort of a young kid as well. Going, this thing was a dog's breakfast. I don't know how I got it together. Did you ever fly that hustle? Yeah. Did it ever fly, or did you just? Oh no, and I think probably the Australian public's glad that it never flew as well. Oh, I should just done <laughs> it. It was, it was, uh, yeah, it was a mess. And it's, I mean, I, I take it for granted sometimes, unfortunately. I think it's ignorance that. You know, Gus taught me a lot of those building techniques. So even as simple as how to create a leading edge or put sheeting on a wing, to me, I just treat it as second nature. And um, unfortunately, I don't realise that maybe those skills can be, you know, um, taught further to other people as well. So I've I've realised that in the last couple of years and I'm trying to, you know, um, at my last club, Asset Appen Sports Air Models Club, I was trying to um, teach a lot of people more about, you know, just fixing an ARF even. Um, someone came in with a uh, Taylorcraft, hanging on Taylorcraft, if you know it. Yep, yep. The red and yep, checkered ones. And it had a um, slow run into a fence sort of thing and just took out a few ribs on the leading edge. And it went in the bin. They literally picked it up and stripped it out and put it in the bin. I said, don't let's get it out because that's an easy fix so i i'm not trying to toot my own horn but i, I sat there and I, I showed you know how easy it is to actually fix something like that to try and pass that on that skill on now um but as i said with the hustler i had no skills at all and there was grains of wood going every which way but loose on the wing and it would have probably clapped and <laughs> yeah i think it was better as a ground run aircraft i think though you got to get one of those models out of the way early you got to because even yeah. that process of building you learned something starting from scratch and then that became the basis of people saying to you 
Now that you did it pretty wrong, and so you, again you learn from that situation. But I, I agree with you. I think that um, there's knowledge, pockets of knowledge that sit there, but um, you have to be outgoing enough to say, "Hey, do you want me to give you a few pointers on how to do that?" And um, we need more people like you. You know, there's there's people that complain about the lack of sort of the younger generation getting involved in building models and stuff like that, and um, and what I say to those people is, well, that's great. If you really want to encourage people to go and build model airplanes, then you have to put some action in place. So, for example, organize a building night once a week or something where everybody builds a, a, a stick together, you know, from scratch. And and you do it all yeah. side by side and then there's an instructor teaching you, you know, as an example. Um in school holidays have a, a program at the local club where some of the retirees that know how to build come and grab some of the younger members and say, come to the club, we're going to build something these school holidays. And everybody, you know, learns from it and they can and they can share that knowledge. And I think that's yeah. one thing that's lacking is there's a lot of talk, but there's not a lot of action. And the action doesn't need to be perfect. It just needs to be anything to start the ball rolling because you can always revise it. Um, but, yeah, like – yeah. Uh, just running a, an event like my local club run an event for like scratch build and, and kit build day. And it, sometimes you get a few members there, but it's really, it's got a very small audience. So you can imagine that it's, it's hard to get people to turn up. And I'm like, well, it's in on in nine months. Why don't you put some sort of program in place to encourage people and guide them and, you know, work with them to, to, to teach them how to do it. Cause a lot of people are scared, you know, of, how to cut ribs properly, you know? <laughs> yeah. How am I going to do it in an easy way kind of thing? So, but... Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you because it's... And, and as I said previously, people are there to help. They're not... I think a lot of people aren't there for their own agenda. Um, people are happy to help. And, for example, I, in the latest build that I... Well, not build, I um, re-imaged uh, Gus's... I know I keep speaking about Gus, but I... That's very right. dear friend. He's a good guy. Re-imaged uh, his Morrissey Bravo uh, that I play in the flight shepherd this year. And I didn't have the uh, same paint that I've been using to spray. So I hit up Greg Lett just about because he put something about uh, auto acrylics up and I never use them. And so 15 minutes chat with Greg and away I went. You know, I knew, tried a new thing. Didn't turn out as best as I could wanted it to never does um but it's just that sharing of knowledge as you said and just people just make even making that call because if i never made that call greg would have never known if i was questioning whether to put auto acrylics on this plane or not so and, and he was more than happy to you know give advice and tips and probably put a bit of i don't know if i can swear a bit of crap on me <laughs> so um yeah so it's just like that sort of audience and getting people to bite first is probably the key as you said getting that younger generation to see you know just if they build an aircraft from scratch from a couple of planks of balsa put it all together you put everything in it servos motor then that flies that accomplishment is just you can't you can't beat it i think and so once they get the taste of that that's fine but it's just so hard to get them in the door initially unless you do those things unless you yeah have action to to get people interested to show people just as you said even how to cut ribs cut them this way not that way so definitely agree 
Well, it's it's a true testament to the value of, of having a good mentor like you had, Gus. And and you can imagine if you didn't have him there, that you may not even be in the hobby. You know that um, Gus mentored you, showed you the ropes, and and you know it sounds like you, your love for the hobby grew and grew and grew under his his guidance. And um, I, I just don't think we see you know there's plenty of people in the hobby that will help. Um, yeah. But when it comes to grabbing a younger generation person um, that are few and far between in our clubs and mentoring them effectively, um, I, I think that's where we may struggle, you know, that, you know, you can really foster the love of the hobby if you really want to get them in, but you've got to spend the time. And I think you well done, Gus. I'm looking up at you. You're doing a good job. Well done. Thank you. Yeah, look, he, he definitely had some wit about him as well. Don't don't get me wrong. There was uh, <laughs> some definitely uh, grounding chats that he had with me, um, which was good. So, but look, he, um, yeah, just epitomised someone to who would be a mentor. Um, so, and the best thing that I could say that he done was introduce me to float flying because that has to be, I reckon, one of the best. Parts of the hobby. Do you know what? Everybody, I've got a mate that he went through a float flying phase, even though he only flew once a year at a float flying event, right? And it was like every plane that he was buying during this period, a couple of years ago, pre COVID, it was like, I said, why do you buy that? Oh, you put floats on it. Or why do you buy that? Oh, you put floats on it. Where do you get the floats from? Aubrey RC. I said, they're four hours away. He goes, yep. On my way through to Sydney, I'm going to stop off and I'm going to go and buy these floats. And, <laughs> and everything is like float, 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 float. I've got this cub. I'm going to put that on floats. I've got this. I've got to put it on yeah. floats. And, put anything um, on floats. Yeah, yeah. And and he said it's just so much fun. Like he said, it's it's so good. And I I ribbed him a lot about it. So you never go anyway. But do you go down to Penrith there and fly on the um on the river? Yeah, yeah. So uh, Tim Nolan actually. Runs that, so he actually—I think he just became president. He did. I'm, I'm, I just became Facebook friends with him, so I'm going to hit him up to see if I can get him on. Yeah, definitely. Um, so we go down there regularly, but I was introduced to it through likes of uh, Blowy and Dave Brown up in Lithgow. Like, I'm going to get this wrong. Wallera Wang, I think it's called. And that was the first float fly I went to. Um, and yeah, you can't beat it. And people are a bit. You know, apprehensive about thinking. Oh, you know, I don't know if I could fly off the water, and and but there's no bumps, right? <laughs> there's no divots. That's true. It's flat. I didn't think about that. You got great approaches. You pretty much hit the throttle and let it get onto the plane like a, a boat would, and then use a bit of elevator and gets up. Like it's it's just magic mm. to me. So that's one of the, my favourite parts of the hobby is actually float flying. Just yeah, and Penrith Lakes is a great venue. Um, I've tried to create a Facebook channel to get people interested in it, just to come down and try it. Um, and Tim usually has his third-scale kingfisher down there and pretty much throws a transmitter at people. So um, even people that just walk up to have a look, of Tim quite a few times have actually um, sort of done that body, buddy box, old-school buddy box mm. and said, here, have a go. So and it's great because these young kids walk back and you should see the smiles on their face. They've just flown this huge third scale, ten foot span plane for the first time ever. So yeah. But no, water is actually I'll, I'll call out Tim on this. Because he did give me a go of his third scale Kingfisher 
He didn't tell me that it was low on fuel either. <laughs> and I got about 50 foot up after takeoff and the engine bloody conked out. And so I had to steer this bloody thing into the, into the water. And so, yeah, he put me under pressure. So, Tim, if he's, if he's going to come on, yeah. I'm going to give him heaps. Like, you know. Yeah, good. He's the MAAA <laughs> president now. There's, there's, there's things that we must do before we take off. Make sure I've got fuel. Make sure the batteries are charged. That's the mandatory thing that you need to do. If you're not doing that, yeah. stay home. I mean, a 25-minute flight prior to that is probably, uh, <laughs> 25 minutes you know, now. leading yeah. towards low yeah. fuel. But yeah, we're not carrying Too on. much fun. Yeah. Now, so. okay, so let's move. Let's shift gears now. We'll come back yeah. to some aero modeling at the end. But the um, let's shift gears now. Um, that As I mentioned earlier, you work for CASA, um, Civil, Avi- Civil Aviation Safety Authority, and you're an aero yes, modelist. Yeah. That makes you a good guy on both fronts. But uh, – but, uh, <laughs> How did you come about working for CASA? Uh, long story short, I actually worked for Ace Hobby Distributors um, oh, yep, yep. out of Sweden Grange for a while um, until I uh, got into the Army as a UAV operator. So I was operating the Shadow 200 UAV um, and also the Black Hornet, tiny little 38-gram helicopter. Oh, yeah. Um, Shadow, just a few specs. Shadow 200, six and a half meter wingspan, about 220 kilos, oh. um, and it's the loudest thing you've ever heard and tried to sleep with at night while it's running. Um, anyway, outside my war stories, I was fortunate enough, and I still pinch myself that I landed the role of an ARPAS inspector, uh, so remote, remotely piloted aircraft systems, and I'll explain a bit of that further on. Um, yeah, so I landed that in. Uh, February 2018. Um, it was six weeks. Uh, yeah, six weeks after son was born, so it was a good transition. Mm-hmm. I didn't have to spend any time out field in the army, or son was young, um, and yeah, moved in. Started at Brisbane for six months, and then moved down to Sydney, and have been in the Sydney office ever since. Um, uh, about one and a half years in, I got the opportunity to act up. In the position in as a team leader um and been sort of acting in that role ever since so so is it, is it all that um RPAS space that you're you're working in yeah it is look uh casa just went through a recent restructure um which did include RPAS, and so we sort of split up into a operational side that deals with most of the applications that basically if someone wants to do something that's a bit more risky the application goes to that area. Um, I've been moved into the area where it more deals with standards, um, regulation development, um, future thinking, future technologies, things like that. Okay. And I'll, I'll tell you what, you, you're working in a busy space at the moment. There's, there's so much happening in the world in that, that area. I don't know how <laughs> you'd be juggling a lot of oh, it's, um Look, I'm going to give some stats on it. Um, so we so ARPAS is basically what we consider commercial drones. So if you think of ARPAS, just think commercial drones. That's where it, that terminology is. And with the commercial drones, you get a certificate, such as people like Qantas or your local flying training school, they get a air operator certificate. Currently, CASA have about 806, 807 air operator certificates. So that's conventional aircraft. ARPAS currently have about 2,300 
of the similar certificate thing. So that's 2,300 businesses that operate under a what we call a REOC, so an RPA operator certificate. And the staffing difference, granted that there's obviously a higher risk profile in conventional side, dealing with people like Qantas and things like that, Virgin, all that. Um, we have about 10 people that manage 2,300 uh, of these companies. Um, and, you know, you could say probably 300 people for the conventional side. So is it busy? Uh, <laughs> I've never been somewhere where it's been as busy as I, as I am right now. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, yeah, very, very hard to, to service the industry at the same time with the growth and everything that's happening in that industry to keep up with that. Yeah, I think it's, I think it's, it's, it is extremely challenging times and there's a lot of things to juggle up. And But my bottom line is that um, CASA managed the sky. In a way, I say CASA owns the sky and their responsibility is to, is to manage that airspace and make sure that it's as safe as possible. Um, has it always been right? No, but we learn, you know, and there's processes in which, you know, modifications happen to airspace and, and that kind of stuff. And, and often it comes as a result of changes in the landscape in flying. You know, with, can you imagine when airliners first came in and now you've got these aircraft that can fly higher and faster and blah, 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 and all that kind of stuff that you'd have to rethink how you managed airspace. And then you know, you've got these these drones that have come about and add that to the airspace and, and there's a lot of work that needs to go into refining it and a lot of learning and observing what, what, what what's happening before you can actually put regulations in place. But what area in CASA does model aircraft belong to? So model aircraft is still within that uh, branch or division that we work in, um, both parts, both the operation side and the uh, standard side, if we treat it like that. Um, in general, anything that doesn't have a pilot on board is uh, defined as an unmanned aircraft. Then it splits off. So then it splits off into basically recreational and commercial. And under recreational, we would consider model aircraft sit under there. And that's where we understand that they operate under what we sort of call a self-administering organisation, so the likes of the MAAA. So that's where model aircraft sit. Now, the regulations itself, there's a whole chapter on, um, when I say a whole chapter, it's not very long. Um, on model aircraft and if you really want to look at it it's part 101 of the CASAR and it's subpart G model aircraft so that has been written well that was written and introduced in 2002 and it's probably going to surprise a lot of people but Australia was one of the first countries to actually introduce any regulations around uh, drones or model aircraft or commercial RPA so in a way, we're sort of ahead of the curve in introducing and just having a backbone for us to work off, which is a good thing. And okay, so to me, that that sounds like good news. That there is there is first of all, CASA acknowledged that there's model aircraft in the sky being used. They've acknowledged that it's you know there's an association, the MAAA, that's been involved in in regulating the activities and and and. I think they do a pretty good good job around it. I think that our, our regulations, um, there are limitations as to what we can do, but the limitations are there for 
very good reason. So, for example, we know that we've got what well, is a four hundred foot limit that um, yeah. we can fly to, but I dare say that's because full size aircraft start flying at about five hundred feet. So there's a hundred foot separation kind of thing. But um, even I'm always a big believer that you know if you're going to fly model aircraft, go and join an MAAA club because one. You're going to do it properly. You're going to do it safely. You got your insurance, but the airspace is managed even better at a flying club. Like, I don't know about you, but yeah. I've been to like um, the local park kind of thing. There's a there's a place up here, um, Caulfield Racecourse, which where you're allowed to fly model aircraft inside the um, the center of the racecourse. Um, always have because there used to be a club there. There's the club there now, but. It's just loosey goosey. It's like people taking off in different directions, and you sit there going, "If you're flying an MAAA club, you're going, what are these people doing? Like, we're flying circuits in that direction. Now there's somebody coming the wrong way, and somebody took off the wrong way, and now I'm going to come into land, and he's standing 50 yeah. meters away from me, and it's just mayhem. And you go, I mean, the flying experience is just better when there's a bit more structure in your activities. And but hearing that Cass's, you know, acknowledges model aircraft is is a big tick for we aero modelers that that they're looking out for us. Um, now, there's a lot of talk about um, introducing this registration for model aircraft, um, and a lot of the wording sort of is seems to be more related around the commercial drone space and that kind of stuff. But can you clarify what is this registration process for for model aircraft? Yeah, so look, the uh, commercial side of things, they already they already require registration. Um, so if you are flying a drone or an RPA, I should say, uh, for reward, uh, you do need to register it already. Um, the next tranche of registration belongs to model aircraft or recreational, I should say. Um, so anyone flying recreational, um, there are certain weight limits on it. Um, 250 grams is uh, less than 250 grams and few other considerations around there but basically what it's going to capture is not just um not just someone well sorry it is going to capture the person who goes to jb hi-fi for instance and buys a dji mavic just purely for a bit of fun on holidays or something or wants to try their creative you know talent getting some pictures um or, or something like that with model aircraft itself, um, there is a there has been a lot of work done by the MAAA um, in sort of alleviating some of the things around registration, um, especially if you operate at a place where we know you are, and that's the main thing, right? So, if we know, as in CASA, we know where you are operating, that means we can tell other people, which basically means that. We can ensure, or and even the, the club itself, whoever's operating, can ensure they know who's operating around there. They can make sure they're not going to be a hazard to other aircraft. So it's that point about, well, if we know where you are, what's the risk? And if the risk is quite low, is the registration required? So I know MAAA are working uh, very closely with Castro on that, um, whether that would be required or not. Uh, but if you need... Look, our website just been up, has just been updated. It's quite easy to read. So there's a lot of information right there about the registration stuff. Um, and there's also a little, one of those gooey things down the bottom where you can ask some all silly questions and stuff. So feel free to <laughs> jump online 
and um, ask any question to the, I can't remember what they call it, AI, artificial intelligence, little person oh. down the bottom. So Chatbot thing, what they call it. Yeah. Chat, that's the one, yeah. I don't know what our name one is, but it um, will answer any question. Does that clarified a bit? Yeah, yeah. So, so basically, we are going to have to register, but there is a fee, isn't there? A fee that's going to be charged for certain certain aircraft, or whether you're using commercially. What's the what's the fee that's related to registering your planes, your models? Yeah, so there is a levy likely to be introduced for the commercial uh, RPA um, that hasn't been decided uh, as yet, and they're still working on what that fee or levy will look like. Um, from the Australian government itself. For the model aircraft recreational, there is likely to be a levy as well. Um, however, as I stated with the MAAA, they are working with CASA to see whether um, they can be providing alleviation for that. Um, so that may uh, result in, you know, if you are flying a model aircraft around at an MAAA recognised site, there's a potential that you don't have to register. Um, the model aircraft. Well, you have to register. Say, like, you know what era models are like, Heath? None of us have got one. Oh, look, I've got <laughs> it's, it's, I can tell you right now, I've got in this two and a half by three metre space, I've got six aircraft over 80 inch and then I've got another two or three some, and you just keep finding more, right? Yeah. And I don't know when they've been airworthy or when they were last flown, some of them. So Heath, you're, you're getting out of control. Yeah, like I've got this picture of you surrounded, like you can't stretch your arms out because you've got model planes everywhere. But well, I'm going to send you a picture then because please, you pretty much actually, find what Please it do, is. please do. <laughs> Does um, but we have to register every every model, or will it just be a fee to cover a certain amount of models? Uh, look, it's likely that the MCPLAY won't um, be required to register models as long as we obviously have that. They work, they're they going to work with us to identify how that can happen. So uh, I don't want to obviously promise, you know, a, the perfect solution, uh, but I know MCAA are very adamant about, and Castro itself, I mean, we're working to come to a reasonable solution for that in regards to what the risk profile is and if it is warranted. Um, yeah. But look, uh, um, I don't think that we'll end up in a position where if you buy an ARF kit from a hobby shop, you'll also have to register it at the same time. Yeah. So I don't think we're going to end up there. Actually, I'm pretty adamant we won't. So it's uh, it's not all doom and gloom. Let's take it nah. well, that approach. And we do learn from other NAOs, so National Aviation Authorities. Some of their um, probably lessons learnt from how they've done a few things. So we know where it probably is warranted to charge a fee or, or not charge a fee or require registration, not require registration. So um, we're not we're not going to place the gavel down and just say, well, that's it, you got to deal with it. We definitely work um, with everyone involved, commercial as well, to try and come to that regional solution. Yeah, I look. I think common sense will prevail, and what that common sense looks like, I don't know. But I think that um, there's enough heads in the room to be able to work out what's the most sensible solution. So, you know, okay, let's just one step back, all right? Just so that people understand, is why would a body like CASA want to have model aircraft registered? 
Um, yeah, so look, that it was actually initiated through the uh, Senate inquiry into drones from 20, let me get this wrong, 2019, 2018. Yeah, sounds something. I should know this. I've got too much info in my head. We're not going to hold too many regulations. We're not going to hold (laughs) too. So look, that was that was good because it did spawn it, shine a spotlight on the actual industry itself. Out of that, one of the outcomes was that uh, Castle was to implement a drone registration system. So I don't think that we would argue with the Australian government and say, no, we don't think you're right, you're wrong. Um, so look, that that is something that came down from the Australian government. We not need to do it, and it it does make sense in some areas. I mean, most of the world is going towards that um, sort of thing. So uh, that's where it did come from, and then we were given the fortunate task of trying to create a registration system. Um, now, on the cold face, it seems fairly straightforward, but once you dive into just how diverse the drone industry is and the, I'll say, um, the small amount of regulations that don't allow us a lot of um, manoeuvring right now, it's quite hard to create a, a system for that, <coughs> pardon me, that addresses everything. So well, there's a lot of people who sit there and say, oh, this could be going over, this could be going overboard, but from my own personal experience, you know, we were talking earlier and um, off air, and you know, my brother's a pilot, an airline pilot, and he's been in the cockpit where they've been warned about a drone in the air. Uh, they were coming into land at Sydney Airport one day, and the captain yeah. turns around and goes, "Drone!" Right, and there's his drone right near them. Um, uh, Melbourne Airport coming into land. Um, you know, there's two things: laser pointers. Uh, they've had laser pointers yeah. pointing at the cockpit, and then they've had you know drone warnings that the you know, drone was seen to be flying in the in the area. Now, for those people that think that oh well we just need, don't need to worry about it, wait for something to happen, no no it will happen because there'll be some idiot who'll go and grab a a, a a toy drone and they'll be right next door to an airport whilst planes are coming into land, and you just hope that they're you know well let's put it this way. If you're that stupid to go and fly your your drone near an airport, you could probably predict that they're going to do something else stupid whilst they're there. <laughs> so, so yeah, you know, like I, I don't think that any regulator, whether it be CASA or anyone else in any other country, should be sitting there going, "Oh, let's just see how this plays out." And if if we have an incident, then we'll worry about it. Then it's like you need to do something. And and I think um, this is just my opinion. You know, Heath and I have not planned this discussion, have we at all, Heath? But, no. but my my opinion is that. Our airspace, things are changing. We may see electric aircraft, autonomous aircraft flying. We may see drones playing, uh, you know, autonomous drones playing more of a part in, in you know, commerce and things like that. I, I still think the technology is not there yet, but it's going to happen at some point in time because it's there and, and we can exploit it in a kind of way. So humankind's going to do that. That we need to start getting our heads around who's up in the sky. Okay, the challenges have been, and we'll talk more a bit later, maybe about the remote ID stuff and how do you identify the aircraft. But even I've got this new drone, the DJI DJI FPV drone, and they've got yeah. something built into it now that warns you if there's another aircraft in the vicinity, a full size aircraft, um, that it's it's reading signals. I don't, I don't know the technology behind yeah. it, but um, and that for me. I really, really like that. And I'm not just saying because you know I've got 
Mr. Casser on the line with me, but I fly <laughs> my drones up my holiday house. There's nobody around, you know, to meet all the requirements. But I do know that aircraft come up the valley to go up to the top of this mountain and that I don't want to be in their way. Um, I get really nervous flying gliders there and make sure I keep it pretty low so I can get out of the way when I hear the helicopter coming, that kind of thing. It's just, it, it just, I know that the, I've seen aircraft coming through there. And if I'm flying an FPV drone and I know that there's something in the in the air and the, the DJI FPV drone doesn't tell you where it is, it doesn't say, look, it's 300 metres uh, you know, above you. It just says there's something yeah. in the vicinity. Well, straight away, it doesn't make any difference whether it tells me where it is or not. I know there's something there. Get low. You know, get, get to 100 foot. You know, we should be fine about 100 foot. I'm not going to have an issue kind of thing. That knowing what's in the air, I think, just makes a lot of sense for any government to know what to do, whether, you know, aeromodelers can do yeah, things for right. that, that sentiment, but that's just my belief on it. I mean, if you take it from the point of view, this, if you hop on an aircraft in Australia, you expect to hop off at the other end with no issues, right? I'm sure you would, if you would go to everyone, anyone, sorry, and say, do you expect to get off at the other end? You go, what do you mean? Like, it's almost, you know, stupid to ask that sort of question. Other countries may differ if you ask that question, hopping on a, an airline regulated by them. But Australia's had such a, a great safety um, uh, history that, and it's reasons why that we say, well, yeah, things like we want to know where you are, who you are. Um, you need to know these things because if you don't know where you are, then that's a, a risk in itself. So, um, and the same thing why we can identify every MAAA site. We know where you are. So, um, but you did touch on quite a few things there. Um, and you'll see that drone manufacturers, they don't want people to break the rules. That's their industry, right? So people like DJI, we've seen that they've added, um, it's basically flight radar. If you look at flightradar.com, it's the same thing. It's an ADS-B readout, which just means you can see aircraft that are equipped with these little, ADS, well, not little for the big ones, but ADS-B dongles. So um, manufacturers will try and, also do that same way as um, they'll lock out certain areas. So they'll lock out controlled aerodromes or high-risk areas. Same thing. They they don't want people out there flying their machines in, in breach of regulations and potentially putting people at risk. So, um, yeah, and you're right. As soon as you find an air or hear an aircraft or witness one coming in, uh, a modeler will generally... You, you hear it back in the peanut gallery usually, aircraft coming, fly yeah. low, fly low, or something like that. You know? At my club, they have an alarm because there's often training aircraft in the vicinity of the field and that kind of thing. They've actually got a big, massive light that, that flashes to warn aircraft that there's the flying field there. Um, and I think it's, it potentially could be part of the agreement with CASA that they need to have this thing there. But they've got a siren that they, they, that, um, and they've got these like you know buttons that you press to let the siren go off to warn people that there's there's a plane that was in. So you'd be out in the flight line and hear this. It's like, hey, air raid. Yeah, it's like an air raid. There's a, there's a, a, a plane. I was, I was on the flight line the other day, just helping somebody else, and and uh, flying a jet and um, a, a full size plane sort of came in the vicinity of the field. And we, as we know, with jets, they can eat up the sky pretty quickly and yeah. 
you know, it's better to, to, to err on the side of caution. So we all made sure that he was very aware that there was a, a plane in the aircraft, so don't just you know, in the vicinity, don't pull vertical. We had a paramotor come past the other day as well, which is my I like paramotors. I think one day I'd like paramotors. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I'm RC paramotors are future. If you, when you come to Shepparton this year, I'm hoping to have my RC paramotor out because it's scale. Oh, I heard you planned on that. Yeah, it's going to be the best thing there. I'm going to win some Pilot's Choice Award or something. You fly it at 5 a.m. Yeah, well, it's the best time to fly it, I tell you. What, a little bit of wind. Is it slow? Oh, yeah, it's slow, yeah. but the problem yeah. is that it, it, it can go backwards as well in the wind. It just turns <laughs> into a kite, and it's like no matter what you do, it just keeps on sailing downwind. So it's got to be pretty dead calm, and you've got to balance yeah, it up cool. correctly, whatever, but they look cool. Um, okay. Uh, so, look, I'll, yeah. just another thing. I know you said that we're probably not at a point where where technology would allow autonomous or or anything like that. Um, I'll draw your attention to, um, once again, Australia – Castle was first in the world, actually, to approve a drone delivery um, program, I guess you could say. So if you're not aware, um, there is actually drone deliveries occurring in Canberra and um, Logan in Brisbane. So, and the beauty that I like is I can't wait till um, I can get it because I can get a coffee at 7 a.m. in the morning delivered by drone. <laughs> How good would that be? Yeah. Um, so th- there is actually... Um, I think that technology is there, um, but I think it's a, a lot about, you know, uh, public opinion or public exception uh, or acceptance, sorry, on actually taking up that, you know, technology. And a, a good analogy is probably uh, the lifts, where in the olden day you'd have, I can't remember what they were called, but I'll just call them a lift master who used to operate a, a lift in a in a building. So you'd walk in and someone would say, yes, I want to go to this floor, and they operate the lift for you. And eventually technology got around to you could just push the button. However, they still kept that person in there. So people would just not feel so strange about getting in something that previously someone had to sit there and operate. Mm-hmm. So they would just press the buttons. The same thing, imagine walking up to a your Qantas flight or any other flight, and there's no pilots in the front. I know my heart right now would skip a bit, a beat, a little bit, right? So, it's. I think it's that public acceptance as well. It'll take some time to accept that sort of technology, um, what it can do. I think it's there, but it's, yeah, a lot of other issues. And look, to be honest and be frank, it's a lot of uh, regulatory issues as well that we've got to work out, and it's uh, a constant drive to. Um, try and work these things out, which are so incredible, incredibly difficult at times. No, I was just, I was just thinking about the workload. <laughs> you must have so much on your plate. Uh, well, <laughs> my next question was going to be around, you know, why is CASA taking more of an interest in model aircraft? But I think we sort of covered a lot of that. We can see that yeah. there's just more stuff happening in the airspace than ever. And, um, you know, model aircraft happen to be there as well. But, you know, um, you know, I'm going to touch on that point now about the MAAA and how closely do you work with with the the MAAA because you know, the MAAA is one of those organisations, a bit like CASA, where people want to hate you. Oh, the regulators, the man's telling me what to do and all that kind of stuff. But, um, you know, I think that if anyone's – again, this is my opinion on the matter, but, the, but if anyone's questioning whether they should be an MAAA member or not, I think that there is always this this – power in in a group in lobbying 
a government, etc., a representative body. It's very hard for us to go as individuals to you know, I can send a letter into my local politician and say, I'm very disappointed about the management of drones and blah, 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 and this is impacting you. And they'll go, what's this person talking about? You know, But the MAAA is a body that can turn around and say, we have 9,000 members, we represent model flying, we're the guys that know what's going on, talk to us makes a lot of sense. Um, and so I always encourage people to become an MAAA member just for that reason alone. Okay, there's other benefits like insurance and whatever, but now we're supporting yeah. and financing people that can act on our behalf with the authorities. What is that tie-up like with the MAAA? How much How much notice and work do you do with the MAAA? Um, look, not to be too um, suffacious, but um, pretty much Tyson Dodd has almost an open line with Mark Lewis. Um, he's... I'm sure his phone rings off the hook like no one else's. And I I know I said that we're all busy, um, but Secretary MAAA, wow. Um, he, I would say it's daily that uh, him and Mark Lewis speak. And Mark Lewis, sorry, is a, um, one of our inspectors and handles main, the majority of uh, model aircraft applications and things like that. So there is a lot of work in that. Um, other areas where we work with the MAAA is technical working groups. Um, there is one soon for Part 101, a few amendments coming through. Um, Tyson will likely be on that as well. Um, general engagement, um, you know, know your drone campaign. Um, you can see in the MAAA Wingspan magazine and some of the state ones, I believe, throw in some of the CASA flies as well. Pardon me. Um, so there's a lot of engagement that happens, um, a lot of phone calls, a lot of emails, a lot and a lot of emails, um, and a lot of discussing things as well, seeing the new and evolving. And I do say the RPA industry, so the commercial side, yes, it's you know, almost every three months it sort of supersedes itself in technology and things like that. But so does a model uh, aircraft stuff. So you look at 10 years ago, you'd probably think, well, what's a gyro integrated with a power distribution unit and all these sort of things like Boomer RC, things like that where it's servo matching technology and that sort of stuff, you, you wouldn't see it 10, 15 years ago. Um, I mean, 2.4 gig is probably the most recent monumental change within modelling. Um, but, yeah, it's it's just to try and keep up with all that stuff. We we're constantly engaging, so and we have to. Um, and it's a very different approach to conventional side of aviation. Um, as you said before, most conventional side has been written in blood, um, so to speak, and a lot of the stuff is known. Uh, it's more just managing those things where we're finding each and every day a new, something new comes and you go, oh, my God, <laughs> how, why, where, you know, so... In that respect, yes, we constantly engage with MAAA um, and recreational and commercial and things like that. Yeah. Well, that's that's, that's reassuring to, I think, we aero modelers. You know, I know Tyson and, and you know, he knows his stuff. He's, a, he's an avid aero modeler. He's a good representation. Uh, representative for us really and then on the other side you've got people within CASA that are also get the model aircraft scene as well people like yourself that you know have been active modelers and 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 can 
advocate for how things work and I think that gives us a pretty good voice in, when it comes to regulations and, and that's why I've got, and I'm not just saying this because you're online, that I'm pretty <laughs> confident that CASA aren't going to try to da- damage recreational model aircraft flying. You know, it's, I, it's, it's the last thing that I think would ever, ever happen was that, Cass would regulate the the hobby out of existence. You know, there'll be, yeah. you know, like we talk about um, aircraft height limits and stuff like that. Um, and in the, in the past few years, I think most clubs had to reapply for their height limits, um, kind of thing. Now, let's look at that as an example. How does Cass assess those applications for, for for model flying fields to exceed that four hundred foot um, limit? Mind you, I think four hundred feet for most applications is good. If you're flying gliders and stuff like that, having that a thousand feet is always pretty good. Sometimes aerobatics, IMAC flying, stuff like that, it's good to have that. But for the average punter, I don't know about you, but when I get to about three hundred feet, my eyes aren't working that, that great. I actually like to fly a lot lower. But how how does Cass assess those applications? That's, that's why I scored so low in. IMAC all the time. Couldn't see, see the thing. Yeah, yeah, I know. Look, CASA does take a risk-based approach when we're assessing these applications. Um, the uh, Look, we must ensure that the risk to other air users is mitigated. So when a person's flying, uh, especially when they're not looking at the aircraft, so FPV, which we consider BV loss, so beyond visual line of sight, you need to make sure that you can see where other aircraft are if they are approaching. So things like spotters and um, other uses like uh, aeronautical radio or even like your air raid siren, Hmm. they're things that we would expect to see. On top of that, and probably the one that carries the most weight is stakeholder engagement. Um, And I think sometimes people are a bit concerned about going and approaching, let's say, an aero club or something like that. The aviation industry generally is really, really good, really approachable. Um, many times I spent years at Camden Airport just as a young kid hassling everyone to just jump in the aeroplane. I got to sit in things like stagger wings and beavers and all these sorts of aircraft just by saying hello. So stakeholder engagement to say, hey, how are you going? We're, you know, Joe Blog from the local flying RC flying field. This is what we do. This is what how high we generally fly. We're not. We don't want to be a hazard to you. So just letting you know, if you want. I mean, even offer to come down, come down and actually see what we do. We've had a few at our local club just come down and have a look. You know, and they're um, pilots out of Wedderburn flying little Lancers that are really quick. So um, when we take when we assess them, that's what we. Into, need to see that if at the end of the day you're doing as much possible to ensure that you're not going to be a conflict with another aircraft in the air. Mm. And then so once you get, once say a club has been granted that that permission to fly above 400 feet, um, does, is, is the aviation community aware of that? Like, you know, can they see on their maps that there's a, a model flying? Or I do know from my brother, the, the airline pilot, that they'll sit there and take off and go, oh, there's Keelor Flying Club. Oh, look, there's yeah. oh, there's so-and-so. Because it's amazing how many airline pilots do fly model planes as well. But are they notified of these zones where, you know, there's there's increased height limits for flying, model flying? Yeah, definitely, definitely. Um, it's actually a part of our obligation to ensure that, it is either published in a NOTAM, uh, so notice to airmen, or it's published on aeronautical chart. 
um, or in AIP. So basically that means that if a pilot's going to be flying over or near it, they should be reading those publications to see um, what's there. Um, you may look at, no one's perfect, and you, people do miss things like that. Um, model aircraft, NOTAMs, and NOTAMs are an old system. If anyone's tried to interpret them without um, reading a book on NOTAMs first, I'm sure you'd throw it out and burn it and use for kindling. Um, but generally, they're, they're very far down the bottom, model aircraft. Um, mm or RPA drone activity. So it can be missed. Um, and that's why we look at other areas too. So your radio, making sure that listening can hear anything going on. And it's the culture as well in the club. And I think even prior to sort of CASA saying, well, now we do want to know where you are operating above 400 feet. And that's what it is. Um, there's a culture that says, hey, there's an aircraft. Common sense says, let's get low so we don't, cause a conflict. So, um, we were, and you pointed out that it's good to have someone in CASA that understands bowling can advocate for it. I have to say, I can't be biased in that respect, but I can definitely give context to what, how we actually operate. And I think that's so valuable that, you know, if there is a, um, argument, or not wouldn't say argument or say a, a robust discussion or something like that, <laughs> I can, I can provide that context to say, well, actually, no, we've got a whole set of procedures and even to your MAAA card, I'm sure a lot of people don't realise that they're actually regulations from part 101 that are on your MAAA card when you get in the mail. So there's a lot of things that, you know, the MAAA do that I can provide that context to. That's, I think, the biggest thing. I think the biggest concern for a lot of aero modellers is that um, – CASA go off, they don't really understand um, what we're doing and how we operate and all that kind of stuff. And so they're going to go make regulations, regulate regulate us out of existence, you know. Um, and I just, you know, re remote ID is something that I really want to talk about. And so this is a good segue into that, that, you know, I had um, Chad Budrow from the AMA in the US and we spoke a lot about remote ID and they're, they're doing a lot of work with the FAA over there in relation to remote ID and having some device in the, in the aircraft that can, in the model that is, to identify them. And um, they've come a long, long way. And he was talking about like a postage stamp size thing that can just put in a model aircraft that will, you know, tell other aircraft that there's a there's, you know, model plane flying around. Yeah. What is CASA's stance on that? Is that something that you're looking at? Um, implementing as well and I must say I'm very glad that the AMA advocated for aero modelling because it could have been a big clunky thing that could go on aircraft but I think any of us could agree a little postage stamp size thing in our models is going to do nothing really from the flying characteristics point of view but where, where, yeah. where is CASA sitting on the road ID uh, thing? CASA and the Australian government hasn't, hasn't decided yet as to whether road ID will be required um, you know, at the moment I'm, I'm glad because our the amount of work that we have right now, just handling everything else, something like that is a is a huge project to to manage. So um, at the moment, there there isn't any decision um, on, on whether that would be required, unless it is in the uh, Senate inquiry. Uh, the outcomes of that, <clears throat> but look, we we continue to monitor internationally what's going on, um, and like. I don't like to say, but like modelling is regulated by CASA, we're also regula regulated in a way by ICAO. So ICAO is a, uh, basically the international 
body that sort of set, set standards. Now they're not, um, that's part of the Chicago Convention. I won't go into it all, but basically it allows for international air travel. If, is that, if that's the most simplest form, it allows for international air travel. But they also do a lot of other things. So we will generally work off what um, they recommend or implement things like that. Um, and also look at other countries, what they're doing, what worked, because it's great. If they try something first and we can learn off it, why not, you know, um, why not learn from their mistakes? So because in this space you're going to make mistakes, and I think that's you have to be aware to that. So at times, yes, we will make mistakes, um, but we have to learn from it. Um, we're only in a very new industry, and, you, yeah, it's uh, – you, you can't regulate something that just keeps evolving every three months or hmm. things like that. So, well, I, I don't know whether you can answer this question or not, but you know, we, it, I think CAS has done a pretty good job as far as drone regulations. Um, you know, there's a lot of effort that's been made into making people aware of those regulations. There's been different apps. There's you know posters, ads that have been put into things. You had grant schemes to to work with 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 parties that could help you know spread the word about the drone regulations. But my gut feel is that the number of drone related issues that you had to follow up on has increased. Would I be correct in saying that there's now more investigations into, you know, some drone activities than, than there ever has been? Uh, I think, yeah, yeah. And, and naturally I think it's because people become aware of what the rules are. Um, so if you're aware, for instance, if you go down to someone in the street, random person, I would say only one in 10 people would have even heard of CASA and then one in a hundred people would even know how far you can operate a drone from someone, which is 30 meters. Right. So the more awareness that brings, obviously we would expect to have more reports come through, you know, um, privacy is a big concern with people. Um, you know, drones, if they fly, they shouldn't be, but if they fly over someone's backyard, so people become a lot more aware of it. And then if they have a channel to push that through, uh, especially since technology has come so far and it's so easy just to quickly hop on and, and push through a, a report or something like that, naturally that they're going to do that. So I think we've got to attribute it to that as well and the increase in how many drones are being operated in Australia. So um, you <coughs> – pardon me, sorry. So, yeah, the, there is um, there's a lot more activity. So we would expect, obviously, a lot more reports, uh, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think, probably the easiest way. I think that's going to happen. But um, I think the message that I want to make is that uh, as aeromodelers, as drone pilots, that it's our responsibility to try to do the right, the right thing. That, um, you know, we've heard this before as aeromodelers that, you know, we've got to be in our best behaviour because all it will take is one incident and regulations could change. And and if you look at like a Senate inquiry has come out of incidents and, and things like that, that they're concerned. And so if we're... <sighs> I don't want to use flying under the radar as a terminology, but if we're <laughs> we're doing the right thing, we don't bring attention to ourselves. And even when it like I've got drones. And as I said, I fly my drones generally up at my um my property up in the country because 
there's no one around. I can meet regulations and, uh, you know, fly through the countryside kind of thing. When it comes into, you know, Melbourne itself, it becomes a lot harder to to fly a drone. I don't see a lot of drones flying. I rarely see drones flying. But uh, you just can't. There's too much going on in the airspace. There's privacy issues and all that kind of stuff. And um, I liked actually what you said earlier about, you know, talking to the stakeholders around your flying field and stuff like that. You know, I know that noise is an issue for a lot of clubs. And I was talking to some people the other day going, you know, what you do is you get in your car, you go and knock on the neighbor's door and say, hi, I'm from the so-and-so club. Now, I just want to have a chat with you and get your feedback on our noise. Are you concerned about the noise that we make? You know, yes, no, and then just have that conversation with them because what you might find is that some of these people aren't fussed about the noise. It's not an issue they haven't noticed it or whatever. And I think sometimes clubs are too quick to say, oh, those planes are noisy, we need to ban them and blah, blah, blah. Yes, we need to be respectful of the noise that we make, but we also need to be respectful of the people that are around us and work with them and invite them to come and have a look. And um, I say that too. Yeah. Yeah, you were an iMacker, right? And you know what some yeah. of the misconceptions are about iMackers. They think they own the skies. We like F3A yeah. pilots. They come to this club and they fly and they take out, they hog all the airspace and blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And I always say to those the people who want to fly iMac is that if you turned up the field and you said, look, I'm going to be doing some iMac practice. If you guys want to have a fly, feel free to come and have a fly, um, but I'll be out the back doing my thing kind of thing just so that you know what I'm doing. Yeah. Everyone turns around and goes, oh, thanks for telling us. Oh, thanks, Heath. That's awesome. No, no problem. We'll give you the space and whatever. That's fine, right? They're more inclined to say, no, you do your thing then and we'll just go up after you. The amount of argy-bargy that I see at clubs, oh, these patent guys, I think they own the sky and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, well, just go and put your plane on the strip and fly. And I think that the patent guys and the iMackers and any any discipline that needs a bit of space, if they make the other people aware that are there, what they're going to do, what their intentions are, then 99% of people go, no problem, you're all right, thanks for telling us, and they appreciate it. So it's actually, um, you know, I work in marketing and, and words and communication and the way that we communicate can make a massive difference to the outcome. You, know, you can either have yeah. a fight or everybody can be harmonious and, and move on. Sometimes I think we're too quick to have the fight. No, what are you doing that for? <laughs> so, Aussie culture. It, it is. It is. There's something, something about it. But uh, Everyone loves an argument, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So in a nutshell, to wrap up the CASA discussion is that yeah. I think it's, it's very, very evident that um, – CASA works closely with the NAAA, which is good. CASA has people internally that understand aero modelling. So I think that here in Australia, I can't speak for other countries, we're very, very well represented. Our voice is heard and CASA acknowledge that model aircraft do exist and that um, my opinion is that I don't get any inclination, you know, any feeling that uh, – will be regulated out of existence. I don't think that's going to happen. I think that there's there's too many people that know era modeling in the in the in the the policymakers that understand it that uh, it, it will still exist. Yes, we need to have regulations whether you like it or not. Sorry people, we're going to have to have regulations, right? We need to have height limits and all that kind of stuff. If you've got to exceed your 400 foot, then you may need to put some extra measures in place like, you know, we've got the siren and all that kind of stuff and a flashing light, but that's all part of it. We're going to have to do something to get something. It's just going to be granted to us for free because for very valid reason, which is called safety. Um, but 
yeah, really, really refreshing to to get that sort of behind the scenes look. So a big thank you to you for for covering off some of the Casa stuff with us. But let's get back to you, right? Because earlier yeah. you talked about all these model aeroplanes that you've got, right? What <laughs> what what's currently sitting in your hangar? Hangar. What are the, some of the pride and joys that you that you've got in your hangar? Um, well, uh, funny enough, I took down a Canberra. Uh, scale rally at the start of the year by what I consider the most unreliable plane I ever had, which is a third scale spacewalker with a Zenoa 38. <laughs> and everyone's probably going, most unreliable? You've got a Zenoa yeah. and a third scale spacewalker. Yeah. Anyway, it turned out to be the most reliable plane on the weekend, mm-hmm. on that weekend. So that's, I do enjoy flying that now. I'll bring that down to Shepherd too as well. I have, I was fortunate enough to get. Uh, out of Gus's estate, I do feel embarrassed to have him, um, but I, I received his quarter-scale Waco to redo. Oh, really? And the Morrissey Bravo. Yeah. Um, and the Stinson I was able to send over to the States to Gus's son, who actually works for Horizon. Oh, um, really? Yeah, I, I don't exactly know what he does, but I just know that he's got a great job, right? So Craig, Craig, great friends with that, um, Ali as well. So he works over there with Horizon, and we constantly chat. So I was able to send this huge crate with all things over there, uh, which I'm very glad to. So that's Stinson. We plan on flying at Joe Nile when I can get there. Oh, that'd be cool. Um, so I'm going to put him under the bus and say better have it ready by then. If you, if you need a travelling partner, just shout out and we'll go together. I think we can organise a whole trip. I think even Bones was going to come yeah. to the next one as well. Yeah. So we'll get everyone. No, that'd be you know, a whole Australian contingent to take over the place. We'll just get your brother to fly us. So we'll hire a Learjet or something. Oh, yeah. You haven't seen my brother fly. That's the only problem. <laughs> <laughs> no, he actually, well, I won't be he used to fly international. And he just now flies domestic. But, uh, yeah, he knows how to get, get us to at least LA. <laughs> so that'll be all right. Um, I'm going to finishing a uh, Bud. Uh, not Bud Nosen, a Zeroli Mustang, but clip wing. Um, so that's going to be sort of a Striga, uh, but Skull Bandit scheme. How, how fast are you going to have to land that? Uh, faster than I'd like, <laughs> I think. <laughs> oh, everyone, like, those Mustangs and stuff, I love the Mustang, but the um, but I just have seen, I, I, I've mentioned this, you've probably heard me tell this story before, but I was at the Bensdale Club down here once at one of their flying events, and there's all these Mustangs and Spitfires and stuff, and there were five of those, it was either a Mustang or a Spitfire, five of them, like, got damaged that day, and it was ta- either takeoff or landing where they were just being, something would go wrong, and then... You have a clipped wing as well. <laughs> All I can think of is yeah. you just flying in full full throttle and uh, putting a rest of hook out or something to slow the thing. <laughs> there was a actually I'm not sure if it's still around, but there was a clipped wing Corsair that used to fly down at Shepparton, and man, that thing used to hold. And great pilot behind it too. But I I don't I reckon I'll be landing quicker than that. So we'll see what happens. Maybe a one flight wonder. Nah, you'd be right. Um, what else? We've got a, just a Sam Pro Texan. Um, How does then, that uh, land? <laughs> everyone, everyone, it hasn't yet. <laughs> well, it might be sold first. That's another model, the Texan. Everyone says, oh, yeah, they're a pig to land. Yeah, short coupling is really not good for, yeah. well, I'm sure you're aware. It's better when they're not. Um, and then just got a, a wacky float plane, little S-back and a 
pride and joy is the Gus's Valiant uh, 30cc. Yeah. So that's a hanging on Valiant. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. Bit of a story, actually. So Craig uh, was their lead design on it. And the reason it's called Valiant is because Gus used to have a uh, Valiant wagon oh, yeah. when Craig was little. And so I think Craig's quite sentimental. And so he put, um, yeah, Valiant on that. And also he created the little leather design on the SR, SR22 yeah. from 30cc one. So you'll see it's uh, GG is a registration, which is for um, Gus. Oh, Gus really? Green. Gee, that's a good yeah. story. Well, a mate of mine um, that loves the float planes with the float flying phase, he, he's got two Valiants, actually. He bought a spare one. Um, and right. I said, why did you buy a Valiant? Another trainer plane for you, as I call it. <laughs> and he said, he said, I've got to put one on floats. I'm going, oh, here we go at the floats. What mode are you going to put in there? I'm going to put a 40cc. I need a bit of extra grunt to get off the water. I said, this is going to get off the water easy. Look at the wing on it. It's like a stolt plane yeah. kind of thing. But it's a nice flying plane. But I didn't know there was that link with an, with an Aussie. And the, I had yeah. one of those Cirrus as well. Um, that landed pretty fast as well. But yeah. Yeah, uh, I ended up selling it. Uh, there was a, there's a design flaw with that Cirrus, but it's not the designer's fault. It's the it's the full-size one. Is that front nose wheel on the – like the Cirrus has got this very sort of forward protruding oh, nose yeah. wheel and one slightly rough uh, landing and, the, and it breaks. It just it bends and, oh, you know, whatever. Yeah, it's, again, oh. it's not Hangar 9's fault. It's just the design of the aircraft which makes it makes it difficult. And I uh, so I ended up having spare spare nose wheels actually. I sold it to a fellow club member, and he loves it. He thinks it's a great great plane. But I love the look of it. Oh, yeah. You know that was that was I love Cessnas, but I but I um yeah love that SR twenty. Well, it's the same sort of designs as a Cessna four hundred, just sleek and yeah yeah. It was composite fuselage, which I liked. Um, as well, but um, I didn't build it. A friend of mine built it for me, and it was a pig of a plane to build. Like, right, you got to have small hands and some of the things. But um, but I'll yeah, let Craig know. <laughs> yeah, can you tell him that they don't make them anymore? They haven't. They haven't made them. Nah. You know, I think with a lot of these manufacturers, they they build a model for a period of time, sell it, and then that's it. You know, it's 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 hard to. It has to be a very 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 popular plane for them to keep on doing multiple production runs. Yeah. You know? And yeah, yeah you want to move on to the next thing anyway, most of us. So, you know, sort of like buying the five same plane five times. I know you said the Valiant was a bit of a trainer, but I can throw that thing around like you would Oh, no, believe. it it's, is. They're unreal. I just, um, I call every high winger trainer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a pipe of Cubs trainer, as far as I'm good. It's all about my one mate, Dominic, the head of the peanut gallery. I just give him, I've got to find something to keep, on him, keep him on his toes. It's like, oh, another trainer plane. Oh, but no, he's going, he's, he's gone. He's, he's bypassed because of COVID. They couldn't have any of the float flying events because, you know, here in Victoria, someone sneezes and they lock us down. But um, so yeah. they, they cancelled a lot of events. Well, we had no events really last year. And um, so he's moved on from his float flying and now he's in a biplane phase. Uh, he's just buying biplanes galore, and I'm like, oh my god, how many biplanes do you need? like? Do you enjoy going at the field and spending half your day setting the biplane up? But um, how many pits do you need? He's got a beautiful Tiger oh. Moth, and I'm telling him this this guy Dominic's got some of the best model aircraft around. Like, he's, he's the guy that did all the interiors and stuff. His his wife helps him with all the upholstery inside or whatever, and he doesn't want to go to Shepparton. I'm like, man, what are you talking about? His wife said to me. 
I'll come to Shepparton because I, I, you know, I want to see my handiwork work win a prize or something. <laughs> right? And I'm like, well, I'll take you. We'll leave him. We'll leave him. Uh, you know, and I'll fly his planes. He's mode two. I'm mode two, so we'll be fine. So you mentioned Shepparton a number of times, and I've, I think I've seen yeah. him before. And uh, I'm gonna have I'm gonna have the guys on there. Oh, you just reminded me. I keep on saying this every week. I have to do the event fly. I haven't done it yet. Man, I've got to do it this week. It's not out, is it? No. Nah, save the date. There's a save the date. I, I, I do their website for the Valley Radio Flyers and, right. that, and I always said to them, oh, let me do your flyer. And I keep on saying it's coming, it's coming. But um, I keep on forgetting. Don't don't tell them. I'll just put it in a public forum. But yeah, don't tell them. I forgot. But I keep on saying <laughs> oh, to myself every week, I go, oh, I've got to do that. I'm going to put it in. Actually, I'm going to open my email now and put a little note in my calendar to do it this week. I've got time to do it this week. Um, But um. Shepherd and what what do you love about the Shepherd and Mammoth scale flying? Oh, um, <laughs> everything. I think. Oh, look, it's it's not so much about just going there to fly. It, look, it's an incredible field, great field, great people, great facilities. Um, but it's the whole sort of, I guess, um, aura about it. You know, you rock up there. It's like almost minus one down there still in September. Who would think? freezing cold wheel the aircraft out there's already people flying and you know going up and then you might fly three times throughout the day but you speak to or catch up with so many different people and everyone there is for the same thing you know they're all interested in model aircraft so i mean you can walk up to anyone and have a chat so i think it's that whole thing you know and i enjoy it because i get to see people that i met through gus um and people like uh, Leppy and uh, Blowy, people, yeah, just great modelers. And you can just, I mean, yeah, you just sit there and watch it all day, to be honest. That's, you know what? Your sentiment is exactly what I've been saying to my mate Dominic from the Peanut Gallery. Um, <laughs> he, I keep on saying to him, you've got some really nice big planes. I said, when you go to Shepparton, you might not fly a lot. It's not about the flying. It's, it's That's the lowest priority is actually taking your plane up in the air. It's everything else that goes along with it. Yes, you'll have a fly, as will other people, right? And you'll all be flying circuits and whatever. Yeah. Um, pretty restricted because there's so many aircraft and that kind of stuff. But you get to see these people, these other aero models you might see once a year. You get to see some of the best model aircraft that you're going to see. That you don't see when you on your general club day that you go that, and even if you don't fly the plane and you just put it on the flight line so that people can admire it, it's not about showing off. Nobody's there saying, "Look at my plane! Look at how much time and money I spent on my plane." It's people want you know want to go there and see something different and see something special. And I think that anybody that's got a really nice model or like an exceptional model, they should be there so that that model can be enjoyed by like-minded, you know, aero modelers. And that's why I, I, I used to read about it in magazines, in airborne magazines in the 80s, late 80s. And yeah. I fell in love with the concept of Shepparton. And I didn't, I only, the first time I went was about three years ago. It was the first time I ever went. I never had the opportunity to go, but I think even before I had model, you know, really had model airplanes, I wanted to go to Shepparton to see the models there because all the articles show these beautiful, Super chipmunks, of course, decathlons, all that kind of stuff. Um, there, and I thought, ah, oh, this is a place I need to be. And I'm, I book out that middle weekend in September now for Shepparton, 
Like it's 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 blocked in my yep. calendar to turn up, and you know, wait until I turn up with my radio control paramotor this year, which is meets the criteria. Is best. <laughs> and I put on my demo flight with it. People are just going to go, "This is the greatest thing ever," and as it sh- as people should say, because as I say, Heath, RC paramotors are the future. Um, I'm started that movement around the world, even though I haven't flown mine for over a year and a half. But anyway, it's sorry, I just lost you there, Andrew. I must have cut out. So. Yeah. I'm just talking about RC paramotors <laughs> and how good they are. <laughs> oh, I'll cut it out again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, good on you. Yeah. Anyway, so Shepparton's going to be a good one, and and uh, you know, I hope, oh, look, fingers crossed, touch wood that we don't have, you know, half of half of Australia's in lockdown at the moment, aren't they? You're locked down, aren't you, up in Sydney? Yeah, we're locked down two weeks. Um, it's a pity because you know my office is actually. I've been purposeful. I sort of actually, to be honest, hundred percent purposely put my <laughs> office, home office, in my garage where I build. So oh, really, <laughs> I get to stare probably at contemplate and get annoyed with yeah, some of the things. Yeah, um, but actually, the it just reminded me you were probably down there because I did recall you took a picture of the spacewalker when I first took it down there, and it was horrible. It was covered in really old tacky stuff and the engine was so far forward it looked like and it's just stupid and i remember i still i see you put that picture up every now and then i think oh yeah. god please take it down that's only you because can I'm- see it i can't i like <laughs> if a plane looks really really bad actually do you know that some of the the best performing photos on my instagram page on the flat out rc instagram page like and subscribe gentlemen uh is uh like the weirdest and wackiest, ugliest planes. You know, they're the, the ones that people seem to warm to. Is there was one that I yeah, had, right. had, had out of Bensdale. There was this guy that grabbed. Remember those um hots, aerobatic planes yeah. that were popular years, many many years ago, decades ago. And he basically got two of those and put them side by side in like a twin kind of configuration. Man, right. that post, oh, the amount of likes on it. I was like, oh, that's unreal. <laughs> I'm going, yeah, it's novel, it's different, but I don't know, it's unreal. Actually, if you if you want a weird, weird aircraft, uh, I think it's Ken Osborne. Creates a few interesting. Um, there's one called the Facet Mobile, yeah. and yeah, they're definitely weird and wonderful. But that, but that epitomises sort of Shepparton, right? It's mm. it's about seeing those sort of things. You don't see them at every at every club. And like you said earlier, you like something that's different, and I really admire that because. That's what I want to see. I don't want to go to an event and see another stick flying around. I see enough of those. You know, um, I, uh, Piper Cubs. Uh, I don't. I've got nothing against Piper Cubs. I love stole planes. Love stole planes. I've got one myself, but I've seen a lot of Piper Cubs, and the only Piper Cubs that I really like are the giant ones. Right now, that that gets me going. But um, you know, I love seeing a large scale Cessna. I like a large scale yeah. Warbird. Um, again, something that's a bit different that might have you know different scale detail to something else. Even gliders, I love scale gliders. But um, you know, just uh, striving for something that's different. The, the thing I think the challenge is nowadays, and Horizon Hobby acknowledge this, is that they know if they build a cub, it's going to sell. So they keep yeah. building cubs. You know, it's almost like a formula. They know what people will want, and a cub is a flying platform. Is awesome. It's 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 like it ticks a lot of boxes. Easy to you put on flights. Oh, here's another one. <laughs> you, <laughs> you can't. Put it on use, you can't actually. But a cub on floats, I like. Right? Because yeah. it's it's on floats. It's different. And and there's you know, there is a cub out there actually that I modelled off a Sig quarter scale kit. 
Yeah. Um, it's got a J3P. It's got a three-cylinder radial at the front. Oh, really? So, yeah. So I got the J3 Cub kit, and I thought, oh, God, I don't want to build another Cub. I never built a Cub before, but, you know. Yeah, so I know you're hating on Cubs at the moment with... I don't hate Cubs. I'm just saying yes. <laughs> Not a, not I've, a got, I've got I've got a plane that's like a cub-like thing, but yeah. the difference is that it's fully aerobatic and you can hover it. So that means it it widens my flight envelope because, as you know, I get bored very easily. So that's a great plane for that. But there's lots of cubs around, and I like cubs. I love carbon cubs and things like that. But um, I don't want to go to an event and see a hundred cubs. Yeah, it's like if I'm going to go to Shepparton, I want to see someone bring something different you know a big bomber uh you know you know a, a twin engine like thing. the um there was an air down there really yes nice. uh what's his name tim dehan's yes air which is you look at that and it's a kind of plane that you can take a shot from it from any angle and it looks good and it's something different and i think that's what we yeah. find though when you have the pilot's choice awards it's always that model that is a bit different that's out there and um and often though with those models the owner has to really either scratch build it, kit build it at best. Yeah. You ain't going to find an ARF of some of those models. So there's a lot of time and effort that goes into it. You wait. When Mike Patey finishes his big uh, scrappy cub, right, it's going to go crazy on the internet because it's, yeah, so, it it's so different. And, and that's what we want. We always want something that's a bit different. Well, it's just that the Draco sold out before the container even arrived. So I've got one yeah. coming. I do? Well... Well, that fits Shepparton. I was, I got one. Oh, I was getting one um, for head of the peanut gallery, Dominic, and then he's changed his <laughs> mind on it. I said, "Oh well, I'm going to have it then," because I love, I love the whole stole thing. You know, um, there's just something about it that that I gravitate towards. I don't know why, but uh, but yeah, I, I, it's going to be interesting to see how that flies. It seems yeah. okay, but um, yeah, it's because it's big too, like two meter wingspan for a foamy, but um. So I've got the batteries for it, so I'm like, ah, oh, stuff it. Don't tell the wife I was just smuggling to the trailer and hide it there. <laughs> there you go, another model. Foamy. Okay, so you know what my final question's gonna be, because you're an avid listener to the podcast. I think I think you're actually my biggest fan. Um I'll sign your models Probably. next time yeah. I see you. But um the <laughs> what has been your favorite model? And I, I don't know how you're gonna answer this because it sounds like you've got plenty of different models there, but uh, if you could pick one of one model, which one has been your favorite? Uh, I want to say one that's no longer here. It's an extra extra 250cc pilot. Mm-hmm. It's not because it is that model, but first competed with a hopeless 30cc Sukhoi and iMac and as soon as I got that extra it just was it gave me the opportunity to improve my flying so that was probably the one that I had the most enjoyment out of um, and I I'd flew that I flew only that model for a couple of years so uh, while I was in Brisbane so that's probably at the moment my favourite but I'm sure it'll change <laughs> yeah. once I get the Waco in the air I think that'll change pretty quick so yeah, that's a good yeah. model. The Waco is a great model. Um, actually, the head of the peanut gallery is building one. <laughs> Mentioned it a few times. Hi, Dominic, you big peanut. <laughs> well, it's interesting that you chose that plane out of all the planes. But as, as as you know, I always say that it sometimes it's not the model. You know, it's not whether it's the greatest model. It's what that model represents, and it's another story of that. And the pilot RC is the 
great kits as well. I've met Tony Tan from yeah. Pilot RC. He's a, he's a great guy, really passionate about the hobby. Well, Heath, the battery's going flat on the recording unit, so we better wind it up. I don't know why the battery, the battery was fully charged. Uh, it was my pleasure to have you. I, I've been chasing you for a long time, and I wanted, I've always planned to have someone from CASA, and I'm so glad that, that you, you're able to join us and to just fill in a few gaps and, and reassure us all that, uh, you know, that, Model aircraft flying is represented well within the the Australian sort of uh, aviation scene. Um, so a big thank you to you. It sounds like you're really really busy, uh, but really really appreciate all the effort that you're making to to, to help us out. So uh, thanks, Heath. No, look, just a quick sort of goodbye. I appreciate the time because um, it's good to get out there with this with this information and present what we're really about. Um, and thanks for doing these podcasts. I do enjoy Wednesday when I can listen to the new one. So not to blow too much wind yeah, up no, you. No, no, I'm, I'm I'll drop your ego a little bit. Yeah, yeah. no, no, you know. What? But, um, no, I do because it's a lot of time out of your day, so I appreciate it a lot. So, well, I mean, thanks. I mean it when I say that I, I do it because I enjoy doing it. And I like time flies. You know, we've probably been going for an hour and a quarter at least, even longer, um, and it's just been a breeze. So, Heath, Excellent. thank you, and I'll see you at Shepparton. Definitely. Thanks again, Andrew. About to leave, already packing. Come with me, I'm not really asking. We'll get away to a place where we don't know. Big thank you to Heath for joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. I really, really enjoyed having a chat with Heath. Uh, a really, really good guy. Nice guy to talk to. Amazing how much he is into the aero modelling and building and that kind of thing. But then also the knowledge that he has with Casa. You can tell that he's really thrown himself into that, um, into his role. So a big thank you and uh, thank you for uh, Casa for looking out for us as well. We know that they're they're looking after our interests and. Uh, not neglecting us like many of us might think, but no, I've always been pretty confident that CASA are, are going to look after us. And uh, so far, so good. No, no dramas with CASA. Thank you again for joining the Flat Out RC podcast. Don't forget, whilst you're here, press that subscribe button so that you will always stay up to date with the latest episodes. And whilst you're in the mood for subscribing, don't forget the Flat Out RC YouTube channel is still there. Uh, we've got the Instagram and the Facebook pages as well. Uh, check out the Instagram page. I keep on putting uh, more and more uh, photos up there. I try to put uh, something up every day. So stay tuned um, on that. I just want to just see something different on Instagram. You know? Those that use Instagram know what we're there for. So big thank you once again for joining me. Big thank you to Heath. And the show will roll on. We have more guests coming. Uh, some really good ones in the next few weeks so stay tuned and uh, I'll talk to you next week